Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Tiana. And this is Next Door Villain. A podcast where we uncover the villains to discover their humanity. All right, Joe, I'm going to send you something through our chat so that you can follow along. Okay. Do you see it? I, yeah, I see it. Um, I don't understand. Okay, Am I a participant? Right, just wait, just wait. Just sit, just sit okay. back. Just sit back and relax. Okay? All right. <clears throat> in sleep he sang to me, in dreams he came. That voice which calls to me and speaks my name. And do I dream again? For now I find the phantom of the opera is there inside my mind. Okay, let's do both, okay? For the next the next stanza. Like a duet? Like we, we sing together? Yeah, is yeah, that... let's sing it together. Yeah, just for the listeners, um, Tiana doesn't run these things by me before... Uh... <laughs> Before we start recording, so uh, what you're experiencing is is also new to me. Just know yeah. that uh, before right. this happens. Enough chit chat. Enough chit chat. Okay. All right, come on, let's let's sing this next stanza. Start at sing once, uh, okay. okay? All right. Sing, sing once again, again with me, me our, our strange duet. duet. My power over you. Grow stronger yet, and though you turn from me to glance behind, the phantom of the opera is there, there, yeah, inside your mind. I uh, am not a singer, and which is abundantly clear after apparently. Um, <laughs> you, are, Tiana, are you a trained singer? No, I took uh, voice lessons when I was like in middle school, and then I was like in choir from uh-huh. middle school and in all four years of high school. So I like singing. I have lost a lot of skill with it, though. I can kind of tell. Um, but... Well, I couldn't. I, I was like, is that Christine Daye over there? <laughs> oh, it's her. I'm Christine. So if, if it's not abundantly clear to our listeners, we uh, today are talking about the Phantom of the Opera, specifically the, the villain, because what we, what we usually <laughs> the just... The Phantom. We, yeah, the Phantom. The Phantom of the Opera. Before we dive in, I just want to do another little shout out to our new Patreon if you are enjoying what we do and you want to support us or help us out a little bit, um, you can do so on a few different levels. If you support us, we've got some cool stuff for you. Um, at a very basic level for only like $3 a month, you get to vote uh, and choose the villains that we talk about in future episodes. And we've also got some really cool bonus content for you. We literally just a few minutes ago recorded a haiku off with haikus we wrote about the Joker in honor of the news that the Joker is getting a sequel, which we're calling Joker 2. Um, but I hope it gets, I hope it's about- Foley Adu. Now I remember. They're calling it Foley Adu. Oh, that's cute. Joker 2, Foley Adu. Which is French, 
You know what else is French? Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> yeah. It all comes back around. So yeah, our, our Patreon, you can find at patreon.com backslash villain. There are multiple levels you can support and there are some really cool things that we're offering if you do choose to support us. But we so appreciate that you would even consider because we're just um, a couple of people here recording in our homes this podcast that we love, but it is just a hobby. We don't do it professionally. So any support that you give, we we just love and appreciate so much. This podcast is my only life. Um, I have no life outside of it. So when Joe says it's a hobby for me, it is uh, the reason I live. No, just kidding. That's too dramatic. Uh, it's, yeah, it's it's a thing that I do and uh, love a lot. Okay. And I, yeah, mm. I do it a lot. Yeah. So back to the phantom of the opera. Yes. Tell me, um, Joe. Tell me about it. So right off the bat here, I just want to get this out of the way. And I know, I know I'm going to get some flack for this. I do not like the phantom of the opera. I never have liked it. Um, I'm not sure it's a good musical. I'm not an authority on musicals, but but I've always disliked it, and Mm. I tried really hard to enjoy it, and I just don't. But that doesn't change the fact that I I did do a lot of research, and regardless of my personal feelings about the show, there are, I think, a lot of interesting things to talk about here. Someone needs to get shanked behind the curtain. Uh, I hope you don't mean me. So uh, The Phantom of the Opera was originally a novel published in 1910 by Gaston LaRue. And then... I just want to say, I liked The Phantom of the Opera, in case mm. the listeners like, why are you doing this episode then? Uh, because I wanted to do it. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so after that, the novel was published, over the years, there's been many different film adaptations, musical adaptations, stage productions. In 1986, Andrew Lloyd... Weber, who's apparently a famous theater dude. I'm, I'm joking. I, I know that <laughs> I know who Andrew Lloyd Weber is. Yeah. Um, very famous theater dude. Mm-hmm. Um, did things like Cats. He did Cats? And others. I didn't realize that. Yep, that's him. Memory. Anyways, it's the longest running musical in Broadway history. Wow. Like consecutively, it's never like not run basically. And in prepping for this episode, so I'll I'll tell you, I saw some version of it when I was younger, and I hated it. And then a couple of years ago, I rewatched it when they released the 25th anniversary recording of the stage performance, which was really really well done. I actually was like, oh, maybe there is some merit to this. Um, I didn't totally hate it. And then in prepping for this episode, I decided to watch the 2004 film version by Joel Schumacher starring Gerard Butler as the Phantom. I was like, I, I was like what did I like about this? And after finishing it and doing some research, I realized that this film in particular is, is particularly uh, disliked as far as productions of Phantom of the Opera go for a number of reasons that we'll get into later. One of the critics said like something like, it was the 80s, you had to be there. But it wasn't the 80s, it was 2004. <laughs> I think they were talking about like <laughs> how, you know, the story and the music was written in the 80s. And so it was like melodramatic and like the 80s. Yeah. This is, I think, part of what it is, is that the Phantom of the Opera, and I think largely Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals in general, 
there are these big stage productions and there's sort of this like cheesiness to them. And there's like some cheekiness in that cheesiness of like, well, this is a stage production. Mm-hmm. We all know that. Yeah. Everything's sort of bigger and, and grander for the stage. And then I think what the 2004 film did is they tried to take it really seriously. Oh, yeah. And it just, I don't think was meant to be a super like serious, gritty thing. And so when they tried to make it serious, all of these things within the show were sort of highlighted in a way that was like, oh, this had to be silly um, because when it's not silly, it's um, terrible. I kind of just live for like some few key parts, right? So like the main Phantom of Uh, the Opera song, the way like she was just possessed off the rocks and so engulfed with the Phantom. And I liked that 80s beat. Yeah, behind they, it. I loved that. I was like, I was kind of bored. I was like, la 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 la. And then the Phantom of the Opera. And I was like, oh, yeah, my heart rate's getting up. I'm running a mile. I'm, I'm in song, 1985 like, again. I mean, I was never there, but I was never there in 1985. But I felt like I was there again. I'll agree with that. That, yeah. that was exciting. The one uh, image that I just couldn't get over the entire film was... When they go down to the Phantom's lair for the first time, Mm -hmm. there are thousands of candles and they're literally rising out of the water, lit, fully lit, rising out of the water. And Mm -hmm. that one detail, I just, I can't get over for some reason. Yeah, I didn't notice that. All that aside, I want to do kind of a rundown on the Phantom himself. So he wasn't always a Phantom. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Once he was a young boy. Well, you mean he wasn't born Eric. like out of the womb wearing like a mask? No, no. But he was born with some physical abnormalities. Okay. In the original story and for many of the Phantom productions, he's sort of described as corpse-like. His <laughs> head looks a lot like a skull. He's got these like eyes that are sunk back really deep. In a lot of descriptions, he has no nose. His skin is yellowish and like stretched tightly across his skin. Mm. I'm sort of imagining Voldemort. Okay. Imagine, yeah, imagine there's like a Phantom of the Opera and they're like sexually being like the Phantom of the Opera. And (laughs) she pulls off his mask and it's Voldemort. Now that's a scary Phantom. It is. It is. Um, Yeah, he's just like shimmying in the cave with a wand <laughs> so his um his mother was was kind of openly disgusted by him which uh, just terrible his father wasn't around so right off the bat here and i i feel like this is a trend for villains mm-hmm. is that they have like crappy family relationships so already off off to not a great start so he, he runs away from home, becomes a part of a traveling freak show where he is known as La Mort Vivant. I hope I'm saying that right. I don't know French, which in English translates to the living dead. So basically people Whoa. would come to see him because he looked like he looked like a living corpse, basically. He was a freak and people would come and they'd probably laugh at him and they'd probably be disgusted by him. So you can you can sort of imagine what that might do to a young psyche because me as an adult that would really like i already have like some sort of tough skin formed and i don't think i could handle that 
During his travels with the freak show, he learns magic, illusions, ventriloquism. He has a natural aptitude for singing. So he's got a lot of talent in a lot of different areas. And the Shah of Persia hears about these skills. And so he hires Eric to work for him. And just by, I guess, coincidence, turns out Eric's also a genius architect. So he designs this elaborate palace for the Shah with all these secret rooms and trap doors. And he designed it so that like sound could move through it in ways so that the Shah could like listen in on conversations from like wherever he was. Uh, sounds really cool. But eventually the Shah was like, I don't want anyone else to have a cool palace like me. So he orders Eric to be executed so that he can't build a palace for anyone else. But Eric somehow managed to escape and then he bops around all these odd jobs as an architect until he eventually gets commissioned to build an opera house. Hmm. Yeah, the 2004 movie didn't say this. <laughs> um, I believe, and I, I found a lot of this on WikiVillain, okay. which is <laughs> where we get a lot of our info for these episodes. I but I, I think a lot of this detail comes from the original story and some of the earlier productions. Okay. Um, so when he builds this opera house, he builds in all of these secret tunnels and stuff, and he builds a, a place for him to live underneath so that he can basically hide away from society. Uh, and, and he also sort of builds in these ways that he can sort of influence the opera house because of his, his passing interest in music, um, which is probably how he ultimately ends up doing That makes some more of the things. sense. It makes more yeah. sense to me now that he demands money from the owners. Because, uh -huh. like, in the movie, I was a little, like, why does the Phantom want money from the owners if he's just, like, living there and squatting there, essentially? Um, <laughs> oh, that's kind of cocky. You, like, go into an opera house and you're like, I'm going to live underneath here and then you have to pay me <laughs> monthly. But it makes sense if he made the opera, like, if he created it and it's kind mm -hmm. of his baby um and his his creation so that that makes more sense yeah it explains why there's this elaborate yeah tunnel system underneath the opera house and that too because <laughs> in the movie you're like oh that's just there yeah yeah so yeah there's always an elaborate lake under the opera house mm -hmm. in every opera house didn't you know that <laughs> so that essentially brings us to the part of the story we know from the all the productions of the phantom of the opera where Christine is this young woman with an amazing voice. Her father dies and uh, his, her father is like, and, and the angel of music will take care of you. Which I don't really know how he knows that. Well, he, I think he's just trying to say something comforting. Yeah, okay. And I, I suspect that the, that maybe, maybe this is explicitly somewhere I couldn't find it, but I suspect the phantom probably overheard that and was like, oh, I'll be the angel of music. And then- he sort of talks to Christine through the walls. He becomes this voice coach. And I think at first he's sort of infatuated by her talent because he is sort of a, a musical genius. I think he sees Christine as sort of someone he can live through because um, society has told him all his life that he is not to be in front of people, that, that he is disgusting. And so I think he sees Christine as a way to sort of have success. Like he can coach Christine and then she can go be successful and he can live vicariously through her. In one of the lyrics, he says, uh, Christine says, I am the mask you wear. Um, and then the phantom sings, it's me they hear. So that checks out. Yeah. 
However, at some point, and keep in mind, we don't know how old Christine is exactly, but she's mm, at worst 15 and at best about 20. Somewhere between 15 and 20. Based on his history, we've got to assume he's, I say, at a minimum 30, but probably late 30s, early 40s. Um, so keep that in mind. If at some point, his feelings turn romantic and he falls in love with Christine. Unfortunately, Christine has, I don't want to say fallen in love, has in- entered into a relationship with a attractive rich dude named Raul. And he's very jealous. Is that how you say his name? Because I had the worst time like saying his <laughs> name because I'll be like, Raul. It's like a. I've been saying Raul. Um, I, I feel like that's how they said it Raul? in the movie. So Yeah, I couldn't really hear. It's got an O in there that I'm not used to being in the middle of a Raul. Let's see. So he, I've got sort of the timeline muddled, but he basically like demands that the theater make Christine the lead role. And when they don't do that, he murders a dude. Then he gets frustrated because Christine is in a relationship with another guy. And so he, <laughs> so he releases this play that he's written. It's called, and I think this is hilarious. I don't know why, but the the opera that he's written is called Don Juan Triumphant. To me, it's it's a it's a pretty silly silly name, but I don't know. Who is Maybe Don Juan? Me. Is it me? Is it you? I don't know. Is it the Phantom? Probably him. It's, he's uh, yeah. He's probably a proxy for himself. I imagine based on very little information. So he writes this play. He demands that Christine be in the lead role when she is playing it. He jumps in and takes over the other lead role. She like pulls his mask off in front of the audience. He's disgusted, runs down to his lair, takes Christine hostage, and everyone like runs down to try to kill him. Just an average um, Wednesday. Christine takes pity on him, and he gets away. And then who knows what happens after that. There is a sequel that Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote. Oh, I've heard of it. Shoot, I didn't write the name down. That's fine because... As far as I can tell, universally, everybody thinks it sucks. It's basically a story where Christine and the Phantom get together, and it's like billed as the greatest love story ever told. But what I read online is that Andrew Lloyd Webber was upset about how everyone hated the Phantom or thought he was this bad dude, but the Phantom was like supposed to be sort of a proxy for Andrew Lloyd Webber. He saw himself as the Phantom. And well, thankfully, people... Andrew Lloyd Webber is, uh, you know, sponsoring this episode so that we can paint the Phantom in a better light for him and make <laughs> it better for him. We'll make it all better. Don't worry, Andrew. We got this. No, just kidding. He has no idea. Who yeah, right. It's pretty tough to paint the Phantom in a good light, considering the fact that he basically grooms a young teenage girl. And then he's a whiny crybaby when she falls in love with someone else. He's really a, I, I hope I use this term correctly. I think he's kind of the ultimate fuckboy. He's like, I did all this stuff for you. Now you must love me. I was nice to you. I like supported you. And now I deserve your love and attention because I am this genius, powerful dude. And, and he can't stop sending pictures of himself in his mirror <laughs> with his like arm up like oh yeah. look i'm building up the muscle down here in the cave wish you were here and instead of you it's like the letter u yeah yeah he's he's a quote-unquote like 
nice guy who like is like oh i've got this terrible past and but i'm a genius and i did all these things to support you and help you and now you're gonna love another guy (laughs) well yeah we'll still admit he does some um you know bad things um (laughs) uh we're still gonna try and see if we can understand his perspective a little bit while also recognizing that he is bad (laughs) all right why don't you dive in Mm -hmm. tiana okay with your empathy because i all right I need to get into an empathetic mind space before I can dive in. I might be a little more understanding of the Phantom. Again, not excusing what he did, but my theme is about giving in to illogical desire. That's what I'm calling it. Mm. Illogical desire. So I, for context, I only watched the 2004 musical movie with Gerard Butler. So that's also kind of informing (laughs) what I'm saying, too. So the Phantom really pushes Christine to be with him in the opera house and to sing with and for him when it's somewhat unclear throughout the 2004 musical movie if that's actually what she wants. So it's confusing to me whether Christine loves the Phantom back and whether deep down she really desires to be with him. Because in the movie, she's so passionately engaged and enthralled with the Phantom when they sing together during the Phantom of the Opera song. And she seems to go through some kind of like sexual and passionate dance with him during Point of No Return. Um, But then she also says that she needs to be protected from the Phantom. And she accepts Raoul's proposal and wants to be with Raoul. So this is how I interpreted it, right? I think a lot of people, from what I could tell online, had some different opinions on whether or not Christine loved the Phantom back. I think I sense a lot of conflict within her, where she desires, with her beating heart, she desires the enticing, bad, mysterious man, the Phantom. And she also desires Raoul. Raoul, who she loves with both her head And probably a good chunk of her heart. A fair chunk. Yeah, Raul represents the traditional path to success. Like, Mm -hmm. he is rich and well-off. He's Mm -hmm. a safe option. Yeah. He has money. He can support her. The Phantom represents sort of a passion. Mm -hmm. And, like, he supports her musically. He believes in the power of like her voice and her talent and her skill, and like yeah. he's been there to nurture that. But he can't offer any sort of security or income or like way into the social life. So mm-hmm. it's like it's sort of like passion versus stability. Yeah, right. So La- Raoul is the more logical choice. Who give her safety? When she goes with Raul, she is giving into her logical desire, right? Like, she desires him, but, like, the Phantom, like, really gets her excited, though. Um, The Phantom is the guy that gets her excited, (laughs) but she knows he's not good for her in the long run, especially because he gets so jealous and predatory. Um, And he kidnaps her. Don't kidnap people. That's not a good thing to do. Just to be clear, I think she desires both of them, but then ultimately chooses Raul. But I still think there's something deep, deep, deep inside her that's, like... I want the phantom. And that's mostly because of what I can see in her during the movie when she's, you know, with him during the Phantom of the Opera song and during Point of No Return. And so it gets kind of confusing there. And I think she's going through a lot of complex feelings. Yeah. Any sort of discussion about her 
decision between the Phantom and Raul, which I think is what this musical is sort of about, is like it's or maybe supposed to be about who's she gonna choose between these two guys. Right. I think like has to come with the caveat that she's trapped between two bad choices. And there's sort of this dichotomy created that she has to pick one of them. To enter into that reality, we have to ignore the fact that in a perfect world, Christine has whatever choice she wants and she can choose not to be in a relationship or she can choose any other guy. Uh, and so I think we just have to acknowledge that when we're having this discussion about who to choose that not, ni- neither of them are good. Um, and I'll talk more about that later. You can roast Raul in a bit. Yeah. And oh, I will. Um, I just wanted to say that. But I, I think what you're saying is is valid that they, as far as what they represent, they sort of are opposites in a sense. And so going off of that, I want to take a look at what the Phantom could be thinking. And I think he's thinking of the importance of giving in to a logical, full, heart-filled desire. He's very pro-desire, right? I think the Phantom thinks that Christine truly deeps down. I think that... Th- <laughs> <laughs> truly deeps down. <laughs> deeps down in there. Um, Truly deep down wants to be with him and thinks she should be listening to her impulsive heart, even though she accepts Raoul's proposal and chooses Raoul in the end. I think, I think the Phantom thinks she just needs to be convinced to give in to her impulsive and deep down illogical desires to be with him. He thinks he's helping her give in to her passions for him. He, he thinks he's helping her give in to her passions for the music. And like in the song, The Music of the Night, he sings to Christine, let your soul take you where you long to be. Touch me, trust me, savor each sensation. Let the dream begin. Let your darker side give in. Give in to the power of the music that I write. The power of the music of the night. He's like, I look at those lyrics and I think he's like screaming, give in to what you want. And what you want is me and the music. Your soul knows what it wants. And you'll have the dream. You'll have what you dream when you're with me. She seems so passionately enthralled by him that he must be thinking... Being with him and being one with the music is what she truly wants, and therefore he keeps pushing her to do what he thinks she truly wants. So I think that's kind of going on in his head a bit. Plus, he also might be thinking that her giving into her quote unquote illogical desire, although illogical on the surface, to be with him and to sing with him is what's best for her. And he still might think that giving into these this illogical desire is still logically sound. Think about it, right? When she's with the Phantom in the depths of the opera, she gets to sing, and she loves singing, and she loves the music. When she's with him, she gets to be excited by a mysterious man, and she gets to be in ecstasy, and she gets to let go with the musical art. He must think, what else is there for her out there, outside of the opera? What could be better than this? Not much. What, outside of the opera, you'll have some children with some dude who leaves all day for work. You'll tout and nag and and birth out some children in the streets of Paris. uh, Buy a little yellow dress, buy a little fork, buy a little cookie, like for funsies. And that's it? That's the highlight of your days? Buying a little little thing and going to bed and and wake and pop out baby? (laughs) I don't know. Anywho, the Phantom's like, let go of your control and be strange and be interesting and do what you love in the depths of the opera house and you won't be bored. You seem to be enthralled by it. Give in to your desires, even if they aren't always on the surface, because deep down, 
this is what you want. I know. I can mm-hmm. see it in your eyes. This is what you want, Christine. You know what I think he might be doing? Mm-hmm. What I'm thinking about his backstory and, and the life that he's probably led. I I wonder if he's really overcompensating by trying so hard to give Christine everything that he could possibly give her. And what he knows that he can give her is skill and talent in music. He knows that he can use his power at the theater to get her into a lead role. And I think in his mind, he's hoping that by doing all of this for her, mm-hmm. like giving her everything that he can, that that will compensate for the way that he looks, which it won't. And and not and not not because like he looks disgusting because ultimately at the end of the film, Christine has this nice moment where she's basically like the reason I don't love you, it's not it's not because you look horrible, I I could get over it like that I can I can look past that, but I can't look past the fact that you've acted horrible that like you've murdered people to like try to express your love and passion for me and that's not cool like she she's sort of saying like if you had just like been nice and shown me your heart maybe this could have worked yeah and so yeah it's it's tough and i appreciate you know his pro desire do what your heart wants kind of sentiment to an extent give in to a logical desire you know there's some there's some beauty to letting go and giving in to your deep-seated desires, even if they seem illogical and seem like the wrong choice. Um, first, it, it's not boring, right? Like, it's exciting to give in to what, you, what might seem like strange desires and just to see what happens. Secondly, you feel like you're giving in to who you truly are when you give in to your heart-filled desire because what you innately desire is an aspect of who you are as a person. Who we are is what we love. Yes. And like, thirdly, there have been times when I've let go and went headfirst into illogical desires, desiring what my heart and not my head wants. Um, It's worked out for me sometimes, not always, but (laughs) sometimes it works out. Like, I gave in to my desire to love a new man, and now I have a man I like more. Or like, I gave in to my desire to do this podcast even though i don't know (laughs) if it really seems that logical on the surface but uh and some people might find it strange but look where we are we're happy and broke but we're happy (laughs) um (laughs) yeah and you know actually if you're listening you you could change that (laughs) by going to patreon.com slash next door villain and you can support yeah. what we do this illogical podcast or we'll just be broke whatever um yeah, yeah or that <laughs> uh okay i like how the phantom kind of goes against what a lot of philosophers say um like a lot of philosophers have a negative view of desire and giving in to what you yearn for and attaching yourself to what you love there's so much philosophy out there about desire for example like stoicism says that you should detach yourself from desire so that you're not disappointed if you don't actually get it and when getting what you desire is out of your control long story short of course i do agree with that sentiment to an extent 
but I also like don't want to be too cautious either. Like, who would I be if I didn't give in to my desire to love, even though there's some risk that it's not safe and people could leave or be derps? Can I get behind the phantoms, balls to the wall, unapologetic love and desire sometimes? Sure. Desire is very powerful. Like, I want to know, Joe, like, if there was like a phantom of the opera and he went to you and he was like, Joe, and he said it that way, Joe, <laughs> I have everything that you could ever want with me in the depths of the opera. Would you go? Would you go with the phantom? This this point is very tangible for me to to think about. I don't think you realize like that this is something that I am often thinking about and contending with, which is that my emotional side is is really, really powerful. And I'm constantly trying to temper it with my logic. And despite my best efforts, my emotions pretty much always tend to win out. So like if there is something that I am passionate about, whether or not it is reasonable for me to do, I will find a way to do it. My my emotions are so powerful that they will find a way to make me do that thing, even if my best logic prevents me. Impressive. So yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> so you would go with the phantom? Probably, yeah. Whether it was good for me or not, I probably would. Yeah, I think I'd go too. We'd play some dominoes and fish. Wow, that's fun. Fish in the in the cave. <laughs> like there's with the random river in there. So I I had a really hard time empathizing with the Phantom because of how clearly he was sort of intentionally grooming a young woman who was incredibly vulnerable after the death of her father and didn't really have anyone and given as smart as he apparently is it's hard to imagine that he didn't have a concept of how much power he had over this naive young woman in a difficult time in her life and that he chose to take advantage of her is um, as far as i'm concerned unforgivable but we're not here to forgive. We're here to empathize and try to understand. In that vein, um, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm instead <laughs> going to talk crap about who I also think is a villain in this film and is terrible in his own right, and that's Raul. Roast him. So Simmer him. Here's, here's the thing about Raul, and, and here's why I was so frustrated by the 2004 film, is I saw the stage production and i was like oh raul is terrible and then i watched the 2004 film and i was like what was i thinking like raul's like a pretty decent dude he's just trying to like help and protect christine mm -hmm. and so i had to go back and do my research and like go back to the stage production but so the 2004 film they make Raul seem much better than he is but he in a lot of ways like we've been contrasting him and the phantom but in a lot of ways, he's very similar to the Phantom in that he's taking advantage of a young girl who's in distress. And there's no better like moment to describe that when than when they sing that song, that famous love song, All I Ask of You. I almost yeah. decided to sing that song instead for the opening mm. of this episode. I maybe could have sang that one because I like know the words to that oh, one. Oh, really? Yeah. So I at least know how it goes. But then I realized, well, if I sing that, 
then I'm like serenading Joe and then uh, I don't know if he would accept my serenade. Mm. <laughs> Anyways, so yeah. that so that moment, the way that moment begins is that Christine is upset and scared because the phantom has murdered a dude and she's scared of him and she's scared of what he'll do to her and what he'll do to Raul. And so she pulls Raul out of the theater. She's like, we got to get out of here. The phantom like, is going to hurt us. And Raul is basically just gaslighting her. He's like, there's no phantom. That's just all in your head. Like, what are you so scared about? And she's freaking out. And, and somehow in that moment, Raul's like, oh, I'm in love with you. She's like, I'm terrified and vulnerable and helpless. And Raul is like, this is the kind of woman I want to be with. <laughs> and it instantly reminded me of that that scene in Hamilton, because it's another musical, where Hamilton takes advantage of a young, vulnerable woman who's like coming to him for help. And there's this comedian, Catherine Ryan. She has a great bit about that scene in Hamilton. Look it up. It's on YouTube. Just search like Catherine Ryan Hamilton joke. But she's basically talking about how this woman comes in and she sings, saying that her husband like beats her and has like now left her and she has nowhere to turn. And Hamilton's like, oh, how, how am I going to say no to this? And then <laughs> Catherine's Ryan's like, I say no to what? She didn't ask you anything. And then he's like, my God, she looks so helpless, but her body's saying hell yes. And Catherine's like, her body is not saying that to you. Put your fucking dick away and help this lady. And, and it sort of is this parallel. And the reason I bring it up is because I think we see it a lot in pop culture and a lot in real life where like women are distressed mm -hmm. and the response from men is like, oh, I can help you by having sex with you. Which is just not an appropriate response. And Raul does that to her, takes advantage of her when she's in her most vulnerable state, like when she's scared and alone. And it's just so frustrating yeah. because it's exactly what the Phantom is doing as well. Mm -hmm. It's it's sort of it's the reason that she's terrified of the Phantom is because he approached her in the same way. She doesn't, I, I don't think, realize that. But I'm so glad I'm learning so many lessons. Like if I really want a man, I just like walk into his house and I like get in the fetal position and I can just be like, help me. I'm cold. Yep. And he will fall in love. <laughs> uh, no, you're right. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we're canceling Raul. Yeah, that's not empathy for the Phantom necessarily, but I, I think the heroes. I want too. to highlight that neither of the men in this film are good. Neither of them are good choices. So the fact that like, we sort of say that, like, who would you pick? Or like, the big conversation is like, would you go with the Phantom or Raul? How about neither? How about Christine can just like choose whoever in the world she literally wants? How about she gets to like grow up and like, <laughs> right. learn? How about she become an adult? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then she can choose whoever she wants based on... Mm -hmm whatever whatever anyways have you ever had two people fight over you before have i had two people fight over me i don't think so not not to my knowledge all oh, right yeah i guess there's potential that it can happen to people but then they might not know but i definitely have had like 
times where I'm pretty sure more than one person is interested in me or like I'm dating someone and I think someone else might be interested in me but to my to my knowledge there was never a fight there was never a fight there was no brawl in the parking lot um yeah you know I I have uh been fought over before and there's some kind of like weird cloud that kind of goes over the head where you kind of forget that I could say no to both options, you know, A and B. And I don't know why that happens, but I think maybe because you're so stressed about two people. Yeah, I I have been in the situation relatively recently where I have been potentially interested in two different people. And I guess I guess that's a lesson I can learn mm-hmm. is that like if I have a crush on these two different people, yeah. like I don't have to pick one of them. You you'll pick both? Or well, what do you no. mean? <laughs> <laughs> Screw I, monogamy. I mean, that's a perfectly valid route as well. Not like non-monogamy. As long as it's like consensual and there's sort of a conversation and everyone is on the same page about it. But you know, I just I just mean that like in life we always sort of want to make everything like a one or the other choice. But like if I have a crush on two different people, there's like two different people and like I can get to know both of them. But maybe when I get to know them, maybe they're both just people I want to be friends with. Like that's an option too. Maybe somebody but like when when we create this dichotomy between two people, it sort of like shuts out all of the other possibilities. Right, like, and shuts off the other maybe, possibilities you have with that person. It could be friendship, relationship, or acquaintance, or or like it shuts off opportunities. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Really, yeah. It could be any sort of thing. I, I think that's a good thing to sort of remember in life. Rarely are there only two choices. Yeah. Are you ready for the question? Yeah. Okay. The Phantom uses the mask to hide evidence of his deformed face and to hide evidence of his painful past. What is your mask? Meaning, is there any aspect of you that you think other people don't want to see? If so, how do you hide it? It could be physical, emotional, abstract, whatever. Yeah, I tend to think we all sort of have these things. Mm-hmm. And I I think I have a lot of them, but I'll... I'll I'll just narrow down to one example for whatever reason, which I'm, I'm still sort of working out myself, trying to figure out through um, therapy. I won't turn the th- the podcast into a therapy session. I mean, it usually but... is. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just save 200 bucks. <laughs> just come here. And yeah, we'll, unfortunately, we'll I, each I have the podcast and I spend the 200 bucks on the therapy. Okay. Double up. Um, but one I, the very, very, very simple kind of low stakes example is I, I pretty much, as far as clothing goes, for the most part, I wear very bland outfits. Like I wear single tone shirts. I never wear shirts with graphics on them. And I wear like basic, like very plain pants. I usually have two or three of each. Sometimes I will even buy a couple of the same shorts or three or four of the same shirts in different colors. But rarely do I go out in public with anything that really expresses anything about myself. So my clothing doesn't give anything away about me. And I think that is a mask that I put on because I think I have sort of a fear that 
if I am showing that I care or represent something. Like, for example, if I wear a shirt with a logo on it, I'm worried that people will see that and they will make assumptions about how I feel about that thing. When in fact, it may just be like a random logo for some company. But I'm like, oh, if I'm wearing this L.L. Bean shirt, people <laughs> will assume that I am like a huge supporter of this company um, or that I'm like really outdoorsy, which might be true. But for some reason, it, it freaks me out to think that people will make those assumptions about me before they get to know me. So you want to hide different aspects of yourself by ensuring that your clothing is plain. Yeah. I don't want people to assume things about me that I haven't decided to let them know. I want them to know the things I want them to know about me, which I, I understand is not the healthiest approach to life, but it's, it's where I'm at right now, and I'm working on it. Well, I just want to say I actually kind of look, look at that kind of objectively. I don't actually know if that's really a bad thing to wear plain clothes. Like sometimes you just don't want people to know stuff about you or to think stuff about you. And I, I don't know if that's inherently bad. It's not inherently bad. But if the reason I'm doing it is a reason that's sort of like unhealthy for me, then mm, okay, it's bad in that sense. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So yeah. Anyways, what's, what's your mask? <laughs> so first, I, I don't think people want to see how I eat. Um, like how you eat? How I eat, like, yeah. Okay. So like sometimes when I'm like tired or actually not when I'm tired, even when I'm awake, <laughs> I uh, take like a, I'll like be eating meat or something and I'll kind of like, I won't cut it. I'll just like stab my fork into it and then like eat it like that. And then like sometimes I'll like have like a fork and I'm just like hurting food with my finger onto the fork. Like they're like ants or something like I'm hurting ants. When I was in Serbia, in Serbia, people always eat with a fork and a knife, even burgers, even pizza. They don't eat with their hands. So I had a really hard time with that. And I remember like being at a restaurant and like trying to eat this pizza that was really hard to cut and then like shoving it in my mouth. And these like Serbian ladies <laughs> were like smoking and looking really cool with like their short skirts and their, their lipstick and and they just kind of looked at me like, okay, <laughs> and like started smelling. Anywho, um, so I feel like I hide that by uh, just making sure no one's around me or just like going in my house. <laughs> Do you ever yeah. like take something like a slab of meat or something and you just go, nah, 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 like. I'm a vegetarian. You ever take like a slab of like broccoli, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and put it on your fork and go, nah, nah, nah. No. Yeah, no, I, 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 I eat very fast. Me too. It, yeah. yeah. I mean, I have, I, I have anxiety about a lot of things. Um, for some reason, eating is not really one of them, despite the fact that people often comment on the speed at which I eat. Same here. I would say on a on a regular basis, yeah. people make comments. So I, I get where you're coming mm -hmm. from. For some reason, it doesn't seem to bother me, um, but I can understand why Yeah. Why that could be um, something to be anxious about. Yeah. Yeah. We should test that out. See who eats faster. Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Can't, don't choke. Some bonus content for our Patreon listeners. Oh, yeah. They're just like listening to us eating. Yeah. Ugh. 
Okay. Um, Tiana, do you, I heard you might have a poem. I do. To share with us. I have a poem. It's called The Phantom of the Walmart. Mm. Mm, is right. All right. <laughs> Here it is. In aisles, he sang to me when I was picking out bananas. My cart handle was hot from his touch. There, dark above in white ceiling bars, cut out produce cardboard mask, musical breath over fake leopard print sweaters. I back up from bulging beats on the intercom. The manager's crying. He's wearing a blue vest. He didn't make Jason the assistant manager like the Phantom wanted. The manager felt wrath. There, the darkness, the Phantom man wearing the cape from the Halloween section. The haunting of my dreams on the wall-hung televisions. And he sings, his face, cardboard mask on every screen. Everyone looks up while holding jalapeno chips in the chips aisle. Look, in aisles he sang to me, loud-pitched singing, untouchable carts, rah, women raise up their baskets and go rah. There he is now, peering in between the butter shelves, looking at me as if I too will be spread. And I am walking in the river of milk spilled on the tiles, and the Karens are crying at checkout number four. There he is, inside my mind. Rah, the mother sing, possessed. I have seen his face behind the cardboard mask. It doesn't scare me. Because of him, Walmart scares me no longer, not even the weird guys in the meat section. I am the one who does the mundane shopping for him when everyone drops their wallets at the sight of him. Here he hovers over people who've contemplated life while looking at olive jars. Oh, how okay I am with that. Oh, look inside my mind. I know what mustard he likes. Now, I walk to the back of the store with him, where Angela is smoking, and the milk is raining onto the ground, rivers of white milk. I screw off a jug and pour milk over my hair like a baptism. Mundane milk-white innocence and holy darkness, we meet. I don't turn from him. I follow him to the back to the altar on the stacked paper towels. I go to where he haunted the pharmacist on break. He is the only pill I need anyway. I can't. I won't wait in line any longer. Raw, he says, sing, my angel of Walmart. Raw, ah, <laughs> sing, my milky angel. Raw. Ah, uh, sing, sing, my angel of early 2000s music, raw, ah, uh, here's to the heat in the back, raw, here's to my complete release into the phantom of the Walmart in the back of the store, and the mundane shopping won't be so mundane when I'm in the back doors with the phantom of the Walmart. And mundane life won't be so mundane when I'm in the back with the phantom of the Walmart. Hmm. Very good. Oh. We've got to um, do the very last thing we do every episode, which is rate our villain. Today, 
I believe we need to rate the Phantom on a scale of one to five masks. Okay. I'll go first this time. I'm going to give the Phantom, actually, I'm going to give him one out of five masks. Okay. And, and here's why. This guy who is a, a, a parent genius, architect, magician, ventriloquist, a very talented singer. He's got a lot of skills. He's very, very smart. I just think he could do so much greater villainy. Mm-hmm. He could be out there like taking over the world, and yet he chooses to use all of the skill to prey upon a young, innocent woman. And, and the opera house is kind of random. Like of all the places that you would be. Yeah. Why the opera house? I think it's because he's a very talented singer. Like, that's his passion. Then he should go but, to the studio. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, dream bigger, dude. Dream bigger. Like, you can do worse. And by worse, I mean you can you can do villainy on a larger scale. Right. You've, you've done bad. Could take over the world you've with done his it. charming yeah. voice. Yeah. Yes. So, one mask for the Phantom. Okay. What about you, Tiana? Um... I'm going to give him two masks. Um, I think that he knows how to be majestic with his villainy and make it kind of unique. Like, who else is haunting the opera house? I don't see anyone else doing that. Um, (laughs) He's doing that. Maybe because it's a lame thing to do. (laughs) Well, it's kind of majestic and... He gets to like kind of haunt rich people who go to the uh. opera house, and that's kind of interesting. And you know, it's very red and glamorous and filled with gold. And I like the finer things in life, and so does the Phantom. So if you can haunt in a luxurious place, then you're in a, a luxurious villain to me. So two out of five for luxury. And comfort in a random lake in the bottom of an opera house. <laughs> All right. If you're listening to this, let us know how you would rate The Phantom. And as always, this podcast was created, produced, um, everything was done by your hosts, Joe Anderson and Tiana Hennings. You can find us on basically all the social medias. Just search for Next Door Villain and you'll get to us one way or another. We're at nextdoorvillain at gmail.com. And as we mentioned a few times this episode, we have a Patreon now. You can support us for as little as $3 a month, the cost of a cup of coffee. That's patreon.com slash nextdoorvillain. Yep. Thanks so much for listening. Your challenge this week is to go up to someone in a grocery store and serenade them with the phantom of the opera music just to make things a little more interesting yep because apparently we're offering challenges now (laughs) all right thanks thanks for listening